I want to begin apparently an unconnected hadith from Ibn Arabi's Mishkat al-Anwar which is a collection of hadith Qudsi holy hadith in the uh, tradition that the Prophet spoke these words but they are God's speech and this is according to Anas ibn Malik the Prophet said when God created the earth it began to quake and then the angels asked how O Lord will your servants find stability upon this earth whereupon he appeared to them in a revelation that caused them to swoon and when they came to the angels saw that the mountains had been created and the angels in wonderment asked O Lord is there anything in your creation more powerful than the mountains and he replied yes iron and they asked O Lord is there anything in your creation more powerful than iron and he replied yes fire O Lord is there anything in your creation more powerful than fire he replied yes water and O Lord is there anything in your creation more powerful than water he replied yes wind O Lord is there anything in your creation more powerful than wind yes indeed the son of Adam who gives charitably with his right hand whilst concealing it from his left this motif of the importance of man is really what I'd like to talk about today now the subtitle of this talk spiritual life living spirit is Ibn Arabi's meeting with Jesus and John in the second heaven this basically this paper is in three parts one that addresses the second bit of the title of the symposium the spirit of the millennium and then I want to talk about the model of the night journey of the prophet and how this visionary experience is something which is immediately relevant and then I'll describe Ibn Arabi's own mirage ascension but only the first two heavens I have to emphasize that each heaven is something we could talk about till kingdom come we've all grown up in a world of remarkable changes so many aspects of life have altered over the last century and even more quickly in the last 50 years that it is often very hard to take a step back and appreciate the altered landscape in which we're finding ourselves three particular events if I might call them that seem to symbolize changes in our notions of time space and ourselves just over 51 years ago on 1st of October 1949 a rather remarkable event took place quietly and relatively unobtrusively in Beijing Mao Zedong formally announced that China would henceforth follow the Gregorian calendar of the West this meant for the first time in human history the entire world was considered to be under a single calendar everyone now knows the date 
and accepts a universal dating system. Now this might seem unimportant or at best a mere convention, but it certainly symbolizes a change of view that's becoming increasingly evident, a move away from differences to a standpoint that includes the whole world. Of course, differences still exist. The year 2000 is also 1420 in the Muslim world, 1378 in the Persian calendar, 1716 for the Copts, 2544 for Buddhists, 2749 if you're an ancient Babylonian, and 5119 if you're a Mayan, 5760 if you're a Jew, and even 6236 according to the original Egyptians. However, we all now have a benchmark that determines our sense of time, based on the birth of Jesus. And whatever the arguments may be about the accuracy of the actual millennium, whatever our comprehension even of such an event, the convention remains the same. We are now 2,000 years away from the first emergence of the Christ child. The second point is that it was around the 19, late 1940s, early 50s, that a new generation of people was born. It's been variously characterized, obviously, baby boomers, etc. One characteristic remains quite clear, and that is that there appeared to a lot of people in this generation a huge gap between them and their parents, a kind of quantum leap. It was almost as if they were built differently, with a window onto a new landscape that most of the previous generation simply could not see. Old patterns of living were challenged and discarded, new ways of understanding sought and welcomed. The idea, for example, of people in the West making the writings of Rumi into a bestseller would frankly have seemed totally peculiar to someone living in the 1950s, let alone the Internet and so on. This process of opening up has continued unabated, with apparently unlimited opportunities for travel and communication across the world and within different traditions, and into the boundless image ocean of the flickering screen. At the same time, there have been casualties. Much of the past is apparently being lost, passing into oblivion, and not only in the well-publicized realm of the environment, for example, of the world's six and a half thousand languages, some three thousand are now on the endangered list, and several are in a critical condition with less than a hundred people who speak them. And I would include in that, incidentally, every single Native American Indian language. Even Navajo, which is spoken by thousands, is considered to be endangered. Third aspect of these changes is what's been called the space age and it's something we're now so familiar with that we hardly even give it a thought. Uh, if I talk to young students, for them the idea of a space age is just automatic, it's what they stand on, they don't even think about it. But for many people here the personal impact was quite immeasurable. Since 1961 when Yuri Gagarin was first shot into orbit on board Vostok 1 people on Earth have been able to see, for the first time with the physical eye, the most extraordinary pictures of Earth and its contrast with the stark blackness of space. We've all become witness to a new opening in the development of mankind 
which corresponds to that. And yet the photographs, which everyone has access to, remain only pointers to the personal experience that those few privileged astronauts have actually had. And their comments and observations, based on seeing such beauty with their own eyes, reveal an almost palpable change of perception of self and the world. And I'll just quote a couple of things. This is from an American astronaut. From space, I see myself as one more person among millions and millions who have lived, live, and will live on Earth. Inevitably, that makes one think about our existence and the way in which we should live to enjoy, to share our short lives as fully as possible. Now, the knowledge I had when I returned to Earth's surface was virtually the same knowledge I'd taken with me when I went into space. But what took no analysis, however, no microscopic examination, no laborious processing, was the overwhelming beauty, the stark contrast between bright, colourful home and stark black infinity, the unavoidable and awesome personal relationship suddenly realised with all life on this amazing planet, Earth, our home. What the experience of seeing this amazing planet from space does is to take it beyond the intellectual and into the personal. Um, a Saudi astronaut, for example, said the first day that we were up there, we all pointed to our countries. The third or fourth day, we were pointing to our continents. But by the fifth day, we were aware of only one Earth. This is what one might call a lunar view. It's vastly different from a terrestrial viewpoint. In other words, a normal one. In inverted commas, normal. The starting point is wholeness. And it not only embraces the Earth in its entirety, including everything on it, but it also includes the galaxy of which we're a part, and the systems that lie beyond this galaxy, and so on. Looking at pictures of a planet from outer space, we cannot fail to recognize its primordial completion. It's already a whole. We don't have to add up all the parts to make it so. And in relation to the whole, each part is no longer a, simply a separate country or continent belonging to one nation or culture. We're all increasingly aware of this, and also that events in one locality have global repercussions. Effects can be felt on a physical level in terms of weather, global warming, economic financial systems, and so on. But even more profound are the spiritual and psychological effects, which comprise, I believe, a fundamental change in human perception and in human possibility. Having entered the space age, we stand on the threshold of a new vision which is global in extent and profoundly transformative individually. What's presented to us externally in the journey of astronauts has an internal counterpart, going beyond the intellectual into the unlimited space of the spirit. To make such a change requires being lifted out of the gravitational pull of the earthly sphere which we might characterize as those personal concerns and attachments that make up so much of our existence. 
This lifting up is consequent to the letting go of attachments. And the words of Jesus to the young Ibn Arabi are precisely in this context. Practice renunciation and detachment. Ibn Arabi himself says, The wise make spiritual discipline and abandonment of this world and other such things the primary condition for their thoughts to be free enough to receive spiritual matters. Spiritual things do not impart their effects unless the place of reception is emptied and made ready and turned towards their standpoint of view. And those who know God know that the relationship of all things to God is but one single relation and that is how they witness him in everything and nothing veils them from him. According to this spiritual life then is dependent on this discipline and abandonment. To go beyond an intellectual appreciation of the possibility of transformation into a life transformed and affected by the Spirit requires a personal involvement and dedication and fundamentally emptiness. This is why at the beginning of spiritual ascension Ibn Arabi describes a stripping away of attachment, a dissolution of coverings which have clothed us during a descent into material existence. In contrast to human behavior at airports where we stand around checking in or waiting to collect our luggage, in this case we need actually to lose our luggage. This is an action of sanctification, moving into the realm of the sacred, of the holy. Now the second part of the talk I'd like to go on to describe what is the most extraordinary picture that we've been given of this action of sanctification and what happens in the realm of the sacred. This is the journey which is known as the night journey, the Isra or the Mirage. Now these two terms refer to different aspects of the same journey. The night journey that the Prophet is said to have accomplished, I won't go into the details except to give you just to read, because it may be unfamiliar to some of you, to read the first part of the episode. This is in, the, uh, in a tradition recounted by Ibn Ishaq on the life of the Prophet, and this is in the words of the Prophet according to the man who may be considered the first Sufi, Al-Hasan al-Basri, who was a child at the time of the Prophet's message. These are the words of the Prophet. While I was sleeping in the Hijr, which is a, a kind of semicircular porch close by the Kaaba, while I was sleeping in the Hijr, Gabriel came and stirred me with his foot. I sat up but saw nothing and lay down again. He came a second time and stirred me with his foot. I sat up but saw nothing and lay down again. He came to me a third time and stirred me with his foot. I sat up and he took hold of my arm and I stood beside him and he brought me out to the door of the shrine. There was a white animal 
half mule, half donkey, with wings on its side with which it propelled its feet, putting down each forefoot at the limit of its sight, and he mounted me upon it. And then he went out with me, keeping close by my side. And then Hassan al-Basri goes on, The Apostle and Gabriel went their way until they arrived at the shrine at Jerusalem. And there he found Abraham, Moses and Jesus amongst a company of the prophets. The Apostle acted as their leader in prayer. From then on there's a story of the mirage and the ascent through the heavens. I won't go into the effect that this had subsequently on when he got back to Mecca and told people about it and how they wouldn't believe it. That's another story. Now, this night journey occurs in two stages. The first is called the Isra, the night journey part, which is a horizontal one from the sacred mosque to the furthest shrine. And these are understood to be the Kaaba in Mecca and the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. The second part is the ascension itself, the mirage, a vertical journey through the seven heavens into the presence of divine proximity known as the coming together of the two arcs or closer. This vertical journey is said to take place from the site of the great rock now lying beneath the dome of the rock on the Temple Mount at the very heart of Jerusalem. Now first of all it's worth mentioning that the earliest narratives of the night journey do not mention Jerusalem by name and the identification of the furthest shrine with the temple was by no means universal. For some early Muslims the distant shrine actually meant the beginning of heaven itself rather than any earthly place. However, within a generation it seems that the Jerusalem connection was firmly established and it's accepted widely now. Why was Jerusalem so important? Most modern scholars emphasize that this visionary journey of Muhammad demonstrates his insistence that the religion of Islam was not a new religion. It was the re-establishment of the fundamental Abrahamic tradition whose center could be found in the city of Jerusalem. Not only Abrahamic, but a tradition that embraced the whole of Judeo-Christian culture. Jerusalem was the city of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of God the High who blessed Abraham. The city of the rock where Abraham is said to have sacrificed a ram in place of his son. And the same rock that Jacob called the gate of heaven through which God spoke to him. The city of David where he installed the Ark of the Covenant, the sacred sign of God's compact with the children of Israel. The city of his son Solomon, who constructed the temple of the Lord with an inner shrine overlaid with solid gold in which to place the ark. The city, once called perfect in beauty and joy of the whole earth, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The city where Ezra read the scroll of the teaching of Moses to the congregation. The city, of course, of Jesus, where he healed the sick at the pools of Bethesda, where he ate the Passover meal of the Last Supper with his disciples, and where those self-same disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to talk in other tongues as the Spirit gave them power of utterance. Above all, it had long, long been considered the city of holiness, whose architecture 
revealed successive layers of purification in the approach to God. There were areas barring anyone exuding bodily fluid, colds, menstruation. Then anyone who had contracted uncleanness from a corpse. Then those whose atonement was incomplete. Then those people who were not priests. Then those whose hair was unloosed. Those whose feet or hands were unwashed. Until finally one reached the Holy of Holies where it said, none may enter in save only the high priest on the day of atonement at the time of the temple service. Here at last, one man alone, representative of all mankind, would kneel in the presence of the almighty majesty of the one and only God, that togad majesty, transcending all and ruling all. From that, it's very easy to understand the symbolical role that Jerusalem played in the hearts and minds of earlier generations. The visionary experience of Muhammad's night journey can thus be seen as a journey into the heart of the Western tradition, expressing a deep psycho-spiritual need to embrace and be embraced by the ancient Abrahamic monotheistic tradition, the God of the Jews and the God of the Gentiles. It's a historical myth which expresses the fundamental unity of all religion in the West and simultaneously establishes Islam as part of that tradition. It brings the Arab nation into the fold. That's history. For Ibn Arabi, such an interpretation is one that lies at the level of the intellect rather than the heart of the matter. It is true in its own way but it shows us as impartial observers from afar, looking back on events that took place long ago in the Prophet's life. It was his desire to be part of the great Abrahamic tradition, not necessarily ours. We're not necessarily involved at all. And in fact, given the excesses that we see being perpetrated daily in the name of these religions, we might well sit back with some self-satisfaction and proclaim, well, it's time mankind moved on from religious belief of this kind into a world where reason and common sense can prevail. Man's inhumanity to man seems to know no end, especially when whipped up by bursts of fervent religious or pseudo-religious passion. But, Ibn Arabi tells us, we have not even begun to understand the immediate relevance of this visionary experience. We have not seen that it comes from an entirely different level of life where the event on the physical plane expresses a universal truth, a reality from the realm of transcendent meaning beyond. We have not seen that we are not experiencing this journey within our own being a journey which is taking place before our very eyes. For Ibn Arabi, the night journey actually is a journey from one state of being to another. Physical geography metamorphoses into spiritual reality. Mecca, or the Kaaba, represents the heart, or more specifically, the heart of the Mu'min, the faithful servant, 
which is said to contain God in a manner that nothing in the whole creation can do. In other words, and this is important, this journey begins at the very point where the intellect leaves off. It begins in that ineffable consciousness which realizes that there is no separation between man and God, that nothing in the world out there, including all that is projected within our minds as thought, can be more than a shadow of the unknown God. It begins in the masjid, in Arabic normally translated as the mosque, but literally the place of prostration to the one. So immediately, rather than this being a situation where only one person at one time every year could go into the Holy of Holies, we have a situation where Ibn Arabi is saying this reality which is projected into the outer world is actually available at any moment to anyone. The journeying towards Jerusalem is towards the place of holiness. In Arabic, the name for Jerusalem is Al-Quds, the holy city. It's a journey of purification through being stripped of all earthly concern. In other words, selfhood. It's an interior journey within the consciousness of each and every human being. A journey of return to the meaning of man, which will be accomplished at the end of this earthly existence, or before, in the case of those who have enough spiritual rocket fuel. This is the dying before death of which the Prophet spoke. And in the death begins the second phase of the journey, the ascension through the spiritual realities of man, known as the mirage. Ibn Arabi bases his description on the tradition that he grew up in. So he is mirroring the ascension of the Prophet. It is like an extended meditation on the meaning of the Prophet. Within each heaven, like the Prophet, he encounters the spiritual reality of a particular Prophet with whom he converses. Adam in the first, Jesus and John in the second, Joseph in the third, Idris or Enoch in the fourth, Aaron in the fifth, Moses in the sixth, Abraham in the seventh. These heavens are symbolic counterparts of the physical planets in ascending order from the earth. Moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. It is totally irrelevant as to whether there are more in our physical system. The symbolic nature of this is such that if it is seen in the realm of the khayal or the imagination, this becomes a manner of inspiration. And seven is a fundamental number. I don't have time to go into the other aspect of these seven, which is related to the days of the week, but in the introduction and in the appendix, in the uh, translation that John Mercer mentioned, there is a fairly detailed explanation of how Ibn Arabi sees the days of the week being tied to the prophets and how time itself is a mode of contemplation. Here what we're looking at is space or the reality of physical space 
because the ascension takes place through the moon first then through Venus and so on in other words it takes place according to the physical dimension but there is another view which takes place through the temporal dimension because Sunday for example is the day of the sun Monday the day of the moon and so on all of that's in the introduction if you don't understand it don't ask me because that's as much as I know (laughs) these seven planets or prophetic figures also have counterparts in the seven qualities of the essence itself which are enumerated as living, knowing, willing, powerful, speaking, hearing and seeing. In a certain sense, the number of divine names and attributes can be considered an endless procession of names drawn up in ranks, like the ranks of those in battle, as one solid edifice, each one proceeding from the one before. This is from the Futuchat. It is from the alignment of the divine names that appears the way within creation. Thus, the living one, a Hai, comes into being, and by its side, the knowing one, Alim. And there's no empty space between them that could be taken by any other name. And next to the knowing is the willing, a Murid. Next to it, the speaker, Qa'il. Next to that, the powerful, Qadir, and so on. So Ibn Arabi's conception of names is that they are intimately bound to each other. One implies the other, like serried ranks drawn up in battle. And as he insists, the seven divine names are not added onto the essence. They are but one pure relation, and it's only through their contemplation that the essence can be known. It's indeed one solid edifice that we're contemplating in looking at the seven prophetic realities which we may describe as the house of man. The journey of ascension into this house is a coming into manhood. Now, while the coming into the body of mankind may be considered to be reaching the human condition, for Ibn Arabi this physical aspect is only a potential manhood. Real manhood or virility Rajulia, which incidentally I have to add in America is not at all a matter of gender and is equally open to men and women this Rajulia is a spiritual matter it only happens with the dissolution of all that we thought we are of earthbound attachments and with the return to our reality this is a second birth an awakening in the spirit to the fact of our already existing unity with God that it is truly his spirit which is blown into us and animates our daily breath and I'll quote a passage from the Futuchat which is uh, to do with this dissolution when man has dissolved in his ascension to his Lord and every world removes from him in his path that which corresponds to it and nothing remains except the inmost mystery, the sir, which belongs to him from God. Then he does not see him except through him, and he does not hear his speech except through him. Then he, God, is high and sanctified, 
since he's not seen by any except him. When the person returns from this meeting, his image or his form, which had been dissolved during the ascension, is reconstituted and the whole universe gives back to him everything that properly corresponds to it, that had been taken away from him before. For each universe cannot exceed the parameters of its genus. Everything is brought together over this divine mystery and united to it, and through it the form glorifies his praise and gives praise to his Lord. But no one praises him except him. Were the form to praise him by virtue of its own self rather than by virtue of this mystery, then divine benevolence would not appear, and nor would gratitude on the part of the form. Part 3 With this in mind, we can look at Ibn Arabi's ascension itself, as described in the Futuhat. Um, there are several different descriptions of this. They all take a slightly different angle on it. I'm going to concentrate on the one that is, in a certain way, the easiest to understand and the most autobiographical. The most difficult one is the first one he wrote, which appeared in a book called Kitab al-Isra, the Book of the Night Journey and it's in rhymed prose so it's extremely difficult to translate decently and I've not made an effort to do more than read it I don't think it adds anything to what I'm going to say and the other two accounts that I'm also going to leave out one is something that uh, Riyadh I think mentioned yesterday the account of the philosopher and the mystic going through this ascension together and a certain point the philosophers told, well, you can't go any further, you, you've got to go back and start all over again. Again, this was told with a view to showing that you can understand this mystical ascension intellectually, but it is by no means the same thing as understanding it in the manner of the spirit, or mystically. In a previous talk, I've um, gone into the meeting with Adam in the first heaven of the moon quite extensively, which is in one of the journals, and a small part of it is extracted in my book. I want to give a summary here and do it with a little bit of a different take on it. It's important to bear in mind that the discussion with Adam is based around a meditation on a Hadith Qudsi. Now, in the last three weeks, I gave a talk to a group of students on this Mirage event and I said to them and I'm, I said I'm being serious now imagine Adam walked through that door what would you say to him? most of us would be sort of gobsmacked probably you know. <laughs> the, uh, the point is that for Ibn Arabi when he has his discussion he has a background already that he wants to ask about. So the Hadith Qudsi, which he knew well, it comes in different phases and is a very, very interesting Hadith. We could go into it more if you want later. When God created Adam and breathed into him the spirit, Adam sneezed and said, Alhamdulillah, praise be to God and he praised him with his permission and his Lord replied may God have mercy on you O Adam 
And then he went to a group of angels who were sitting together and he said to them, Salam alaikum, peace be on you. And they replied to him, and upon you be peace and the mercy of God. And then he returned to his Lord who said to him, this shall be your greeting and the greeting of your sons to each other. And then God said, keeping his two hands closed, choose whichever you will. I can't do this right. Adam replied, I choose the right hand of my Lord, and both hands of my Lord are right and blessed. And thereupon God opened it, and there were Adam and his progeny. My Lord, who are they? Adam asked. These are your progeny, God replied. Um, the, the hadith goes on, and I, I won't read the whole thing. Um, he basically sees one person in there who's, who is more radiant uh, than the others, or at least one of the most radiant, it said. And he has a whole discussion about, about oh, maybe I should read it, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Each man had the duration, this is interesting, each man had the duration of his life inscribed between his two eyes. There was among them a man with a light more radiant than the others, or at least one of the most radiant. And Adam asked, My Lord, who is he? That is your son David, to whom I have assigned forty years of life. My Lord, prolong the duration of his life. But that's what I have ordained for him. But Lord, I've already committed myself to giving him 60 years of my own term. God replied, it's granted. The prophet continued, Then Adam stayed in paradise as long as God willed, after which he was cast down, and Adam kept account of his years. One day the angel of death came to him, and Adam said, You've come too soon. A thousand years were ordained for me. Indeed, replied the angel, but you gave sixty of them to your son David. Adam denied, and his progeny denied. Adam forgot, and his progeny forgot. And the prophet added that since that day, written proof and witnesses have been made compulsory. <laughs> This hadith has four quite separate phases. At the beginning, we may note the act of Adam's creation where God breathes into him the spirit, which is life, and the response is twofold, to sneeze, an outbreath, an involuntary action, manifesting water on the breath, and then to utter words of praise. As Adam is our father, and the one in whose image we all are, this is equally our first involuntary reaction, our most inherent impulse, whether we know it or not, to praise the one who has given us life. The drama of a newborn baby drawing breath for the first time and letting out its first lusty yell into the voids of the universe portrays this most vividly. We may say that this hadith demonstrates that praise is our primordial activity in which we are participating at each instant. By being alive, we give praise to the one who has given us life, to the one who is living. 
we may also note the divine response which is to shower mercy or compassion on us may God have mercy on you O Adam mercy, rahma, is for Ibn Arabi ultimately synonymous with the bestowal of existence itself so that God bestows existence upon the place which praises him and responds to being praised by showing himself in another face in which he can be praised and as Ibn Arabi says no one praises him except him the second phase shows us how Adam, primordial man, greets other creatures, here the highest possible, the angels. Again, it's an inherent primordial greeting, salam. It's the recognition of the true being of another, not simply a formula of words to be repeated when you meet someone. And again, the angels add the qualification of mercy in return, and upon you be peace and the mercy of God. The third phase is the one that forms the subject of Ibn Arabi's discussion with Adam, the subject of the two hands. So we know that in one hand was Adam and his progeny. Ibn Arabi questions Adam then. Well, it's logical. What was in the other hand? Yeah. And he was told, the world. Thus he's shown that humanity and the world are equally blessed and recipient of compassion. Everything is unconditioned blessing. At which point there may occur a question. If the whole world is blessed unconditionally as divine manifestation, how come there is such ugliness, such devastation, such horror? The answer for Ibn Arabi is crystal clear. It is a consequence of our point of view. And if or when our view changes, our relation to Adam becomes secure and we shall no longer see ugliness except as relative lack of beauty. It is only within Adam that the distinction between right and left, good and evil, truth, falsehood occurs. Only Adam has a right hand and a left. In other words, if we focus on what is, which is nothing but God, we may find the pure happiness and unconditioned compassion that permeates all existence in ourselves. If we do not, if we focus on what only appears to be, which is fleeting, then we shall find the unhappiness associated with fragmentation. Fourth part of the talk in three parts. From this heaven of the moon, Ibn Arabi ascends to the second heaven of Mercury, which in Arabic is called Al-Katib, the scribe. To appreciate the following interchange, we may bear in mind this principle of pure good flowing into everything. It's implied in the second heaven, which englobes the orbit of the first, just as Mercury englobes the moon. And now I'm going to read the sections. I alighted before Jesus, upon him be peace, in the second heaven, finding with him also his cousin John, upon him be peace. For that is animal life. While John was his cousin, he himself, Jesus, was wholly spiritual. And since animal life is necessary for the spirit, I found John together with the spirit of God, Jesus. For the spirit is living without doubt, and all that is living 
is spirit. So there are three principles immediately portrayed in this conjunction of Jesus and John. Animal life is necessary for the spirit. Spirit is what is living, and all that is living is spirit. So on the one hand there is a distinction between the animal life and the spirit, because the spirit animates and the animal is animated. But it's not simply an active-passive distinction. The spirit doesn't appear as such and requires the body to manifest. So the body is then spirit manifest, alive through the life of the spirit. Alive, we may also say, in its own right. So there are immediately two aspects. The living spirit, represented by Jesus, wholly spiritual and fluent in all, and the life of the living, the animal life, represented by John, related to, but not identical, with spirit itself, since it's subject to birth and death. Typical of Ibn Arabi, he starts asking questions. The first question is addressed to Jesus on the subject of what makes him so different? <laughs> I greeted them both, and then I asked him, meaning Jesus, how is it that you exceed us all such that God raised you aloft through the Spirit which is directly connected to God? A bit of background, there is a Quranic reference here. In the Quran it says, when God said, Jesus, I shall take thee to me, and I shall raise you to me. So the question, how is it that you exceed us all, such that God raised you aloft through the Spirit, which is directly connected to God? And he replied, Don't you see my connection to the one who presented me as gift to my mother? And then I understood what he'd said. The difference between us and Jesus is thus related to his particular constitution, the way in which his material form was composed. A composition, as Ibn Arabi explains in the Fusus, of the real water of Mary and the imaginary or assumed water of Gabriel. Elsewhere, Ibn Arabi explains there are four kinds of human beings. Adam, born of no human parents. Eve, born solely of a human father. Adam's progeny, the rest of us who have two human parents, and finally Jesus, born solely of a human mother. And I might add at this point, according to a hadith, God created the angels from light, the jinn from fire, and mankind from water. Thus, Jesus was an amalgam, a union of angel and mankind, of light and water. And it's worth remarking that the final possibility is considered to be the union of fire and water, very unusual combination, which for Ibn Arabi is in the figure of Bilqis, the Queen of Sheba. According to a tradition, it was said, according to Ibn Arabi, she's born in a similar way to Jesus, her father being of the jinn and her mother of mankind. This uh, occurs in the Turjaman. Let's put all that aside. Let's just talk about Jesus for the minute. The intervention of Gabriel, dressed in human form, in the act of conception, distinguishes Jesus from all others of humankind. 
he is not only formed of the material bodily water of Mary, but also of the assumed water, which is inherent in the breath of the human form assumed by Gabriel. In his commentary on Ibn Arabi's Fusus, entitled the Fukuk, Sadruddin Konevi emphasizes that this peculiar distinction of being different to all others of the human species underlies the title of the chapter of Jesus in the Fusus, Al-Hikmat Al-Nubuwa, variously translated in different places. This is Sadruddin's writing. Know that the word Nebi, which is usually translated as prophet, can appear with a Hamza at the end or without. If it's with a Hamza, it comes from Naba, which is bringing news or prophesying, normal meaning. Without the Hamza, it is from Naba, Yanbu, in the sense of being exalted or elevated, Irtifa. And this is what our Sheikh meant by calling this wisdom the wisdom of Nubuwa. He did not mean it in the sense of bringing news, since all of the prophets who are mentioned in this book participate in this. He meant it in the sense of elevation. This is Sadruddin's commentary. He goes on to explain in what way, in some detail, in what way this elevation is manifest in Jesus. I emphasize this only because in certain translations it's called the wisdom of prophethood because of later commentators taking the word in that meaning. It should be added that having two different species of parents does not mean that Jesus had two natures, one human and one angelic or divine. Rather, he had two parents constitutionally different, but a single nature in himself. He is a conjunction of two forms, the material or physical and the spiritual or imaginal. But the spiritual side also appears in human guise because Gabriel assumed human form, spirit dressed in form. And thus Jesus appeared fully human with a nature that combined the real stroke physical and the assumed stroke spiritual. In one respect human, in another respect embodied spirit. He is thus in a kind of in-between condition between the high angelic realm and the human realm, a man of the Barzakh, partaking of both and belonging to neither. This Barzakhi condition distinguishes Jesus' actions both from other human beings and from Gabriel. I'm putting all this in in order to explain the next part of the conversation. Jesus added... Now he's talking with Ibn Arabi. If it had not been for this connection to Gabriel, I would not have revived the dead. No one who revives the dead can revive them except to the extent of what he inherits from me. But he does not occupy my station in regard to that, just as I do not possess the station of the one who gave me the gift of reviving the dead. The one who bestowed this upon me, which is Gabriel, does not set foot on a place without bestowing life upon that place through the touch or imprint of his footstep. I am not like that. Our portion is that we resurrect forms through a specific touch, while the universal spirit, which is Gabriel, takes charge of the spirits of those forms. The spirit which he bestowed upon me does not have that effect, 
it bestows life upon a form which the Gabrielian touch has already manifested. So know that. This will be familiar to you if you've read the chapter on the Fasus where it's gone into in, in much greater detail. But the life-giving characteristic of the spirit appears here in two forms. As a partial, specific power in Jesus who's able to revive the dead, able to fashion birds from clay and make them living by breathing on them. And as a universal power in Gabriel who bestows life by the very imprint of his foot. And this may recall the story of the golden calf when the man known in the Quran as Asamiri noticed that Gabriel had gone by and picked up a handful of the dust and threw it into the calf and the calf mood. Now although he doesn't possess the same power as Gabriel, Jesus nonetheless inherits this from him. As Sadruddin puts it, the reviving of the dead is due to the spiritual secret with which he was needed, this sort of needed. With regard to Gabriel, elsewhere Ibn Arabi talks about the story of Samiri and he also mentions another Gabrielian or Christic inheritance which is rather peculiar, which some Gnostics have acquired. They are able to assume different forms through the power of imagination. So there's a famous case of a man called Qadib al-Ban who was able to appear in any form he liked. But for Ibn Arabi he says the preference should always be given to assuming the human form rather than for example the animal. Strangely that completes the conversation with Jesus. It's very short, very brief, but it's interesting that two of the most important elements which are dealt with at length in the Fasus are present. The extraordinary genesis of, of Jesus and the life-giving power he manifested. Part five of the three-part talk. <laughs> the rest of the conversation in the second heaven takes place with John, Yahya. And it begins with the meanings of his name. And I quote, then I turned to John, upon whom be peace, and I said to him, I have been informed in a hadith that you will put death to death when God brings it on the day of resurrection, that it will be placed between heaven and hell so that so-and-so may see it, and they will recognize death in the form of a black and white ram. John replied, Yes, and that behoves none but me, for I am Yahya, literally, the one who is alive. My opposite, death, cannot remain with me. It is the house of the animal. The elimination of death is inevitable, and no one other than me can eliminate it. I replied, well, you've answered my question, but um, in the world there are lots of Johns. And he replied, yet it is I who possess the first degree in this name. Through me do those Johns become John." from beginning to end. God gave me this name before all others, and all Johns are subordinate to me. With my appearance they have no authority of their own. Thus he informed me of something which I had not been conscious of, and I exclaimed, May God bless you with good from those who inherit. There is here an echo of the all-embracing compassion in Adam. John exemplifies the living one in which there is no death. 
he baptizes with the water of life. Death only occurs at the level of the animal, symbolized here by the ram, and is indissolubly linked with sacrifice, the shedding of blood that washes away sin and gives birth to new life. The ram, of course, is primarily an animal of sacrifice. It was a ram that was substituted for Abraham's child as he prepared to offer him up. The world in which death belongs is one of intermixing, like the colors of the ram, black and white. And death itself shall die at the hands of its opposite, the living one personified as Yahya. Exactly as Jesus is said to destroy the Antichrist at the time of his second coming. Primordiality in the quality of life is accorded to John, the one alive. And again, this is explained further in the chapter of the wisdom of majesty, Hikma Jalalia, in the word of John, in the Fusus. And I'll quote the first section. And this is the very beginning of the chapter. This is the wisdom of primordiality amongst the names because God called him Yahya. In other words, that through him the remembrance of Zechariah lives on. We had not given this as a name to anyone before. He combined both the quality which is passed on by the one who leaves a son in whom his remembrance lives on and his being named by that. God named him Yahya, one alive, and his name became alive, just like the knowledge of taste. Certainly Adam's remembrance lived on through Seth, Noah's lived on through Shem, and likewise with other prophets. But God had never, before John, combined someone's proper name and the quality of that person. It was only done for Zachariah out of loving care for him when he asked, Grant me as a gift from your private knowledge a saintly heir. The story is that Zechariah had gone in and found Mary in the Mishrab and had been so struck by her presence. And being an old man, he uh, was extremely worried that there would be no one after him. And he then, in this particular state, had asked for a son. So his asking produces not only a son who is his heir, but also is named with the quality of that remembrance. So what Ibn Arabi is saying is this never happened before. People are given names, but the name doesn't necessarily refer to the livingness of the remembrance that goes on. Now, there are, of course, many parallels between John and Jesus. Both were conceived in miraculous fashion, one to an apparently barren woman, one to a virgin, both through the intervention of Gabriel, who brought the good news to Zechariah and to Mary. Recognition took place while still in the womb. As it says in Luke, as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Both were agencies of purification. John said, I baptize you in water for repentance, but the one who follows me is more powerful than I am, and I'm not fit to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Both were vilified, imprisoned, condemned to death by the authorities. Their similarities are also explored in the Quranic accounts, which are perhaps less familiar to some of you, in the next part of the conversation. 
This is a fairly long and detailed explanation. I added, this is Ibn Arabi speaking, I added, praise be to God who has brought you both together in a single heaven, meaning the Spirit of God, Jesus and John, upon them both be peace, that I can ask you both a question and get an answer from you both. You've both been specified with the Salaam of God. It's reported of Jesus that he said in the cradle, May the Salaam be upon me on the day of my birth, the day of my death, and the day of my being resurrected alive. And it's said of John, May Salaam be upon him on the day of his birth, on the day of his death, and on the day of his being resurrected alive. So Jesus informed us from himself about the Salaam of God upon him, while God informed us about his own salam upon John. Bingo. Big question. Which station is more complete? Asks Ibn Arabi. Then John replied, Are you one of the people of Quran? I replied, Indeed, I am one of the people of Quran. Then John said, Observe how God united me and my cousin. Did he not say in the Quran concerning me, a prophet from the people of righteousness, designating me by the indefinite, uh, a prophet? I agreed. And then he said, is it not said of my cousin Jesus that he is one of the people of righteousness, just as was said of me, designating him also by the indefinite? This is an interesting line. That Jesus should have said this in the cradle is a pointer to the fact that my cousin is quit of whatever is related to it. He does not translate from God except through his own self. And Arabic is ambiguous. This could be the divine self or the self of Jesus, or both together. So, the salam be upon me, which is what Jesus said, means from God. I said to him, well, you've spoken the truth, and I agree, but he announced the greeting of peace with the definite article. He said, As-salam, the salam, while the salam of God upon you was with the indefinite, just salam. And the indefinite's better. But then I was told, it's not actually a definite announcement, it's a generic announcement. <laughs> There's no difference between the one with the definite article and the one without. Both he and I are in salam jointly, and in righteousness likewise. And righteousness belongs to me by virtue of my human side, while it belongs to him by virtue of his angelic side. End of quote. This fairly detailed explanation is based on Quranic accounts of Jesus when he spoke in the cradle, as proof of the truthfulness of his mother, and the way in which John was conceived in answer to the prayer of Zechariah. Again, these are dealt with at greater length in the chapter of John in the Fasus. The central point is that both John and Jesus are considered similar in terms of being pure or righteous, salih, and in the peace of perfection in Salam. And both receive this as an inheritance from their parents, Jesus from the side of Gabriel, John from his father Zechariah. The major difference between the Salams lies in two degrees of human possibility. In John's case, the divine attestation provides incontrovertible proof because John doesn't say it of himself, God says it of John. Whereas in Jesus' case, 
it denotes the divine identity and closeness in the mouth of Jesus it is God saying salam be upon me just as Jesus is qualified by the essential purity of the spirit so John is described in the Quran as chaste or chastened chasura a word which in Arabic and in English contains the senses of sexual abstinence or purity and also being modest or, or restrained and he goes on to explain how this quality comes from the same side of his father I quote that quality of chastity is from the effects of the spiritual aspiration of my father when he attended to Mary the Virgin she was cut off from men and he came upon her in the prayer and saw her state with God in wonderment he prayed to God to grant him a son similar to her and thus I was born chaste and cut off from women but this is not a state of perfection but rather a trace of that aspiration it is childbearing wherein lies the essence of perfection but then I asked him but surely there isn't any childbearing in the heavenly marriage is there he replied don't say that indeed there is childbearing the childbirth does not produce a soul that comes out of the wife after the emptying of semen from the sexual union the ejaculation is wind just as in the lower world it is water this wind issues in the form of whatever the union between the two partners takes some of us can witness that while others do not witness it and it's the same in the lower world where a world may be invisible to one to whom it's absent or truly visible to one who sees it it's a strange turn in the conversation but if we consider that John is the embodiment of life then the continuance of life is founded on procreation and it's intriguing that the two prophets who most exemplify sexual abstinence should at the same time be closely involved in spiritual procreating Jesus in the form of reviving the dead John in the witnessing of spiritual marriage and parturition in both cases the common element is air the breath involved in the blowing of life and the wind that issues from spiritual union in the final part of the conversation Ibn Arabi asked John whether this heaven belongs to him as well as to Jesus and John replies no I come and go between Jesus and Aaron sometimes here sometimes there and it's also like that with Joseph and Idris if I was able to draw a chart I could explain why that's so very very easily but what I suggest you do is buy a copy of the translation of the prayers and have a look at the chart of the, the circle of the seven with a seven pointed star in the middle and you'll understand this particular comment quite easily I come and go between Jesus and Aaron because there's actually a direct link between number two and number six or number five number five I asked him then how is it you have a special relationship with Aaron rather than any other of the prophets he told me because of the sacredness of kinship 
the relation with Jesus is simply, well, he's my cousin, so I visit him in his heaven. And I go to Aaron in the fifth heaven because my aunt is a sister to him, both in religion and by blood relation, my aunt here being Mary. So my visiting them is part of the bond of blood relation. Now, this word, blood relation, is wonderful. It's racham. With all the associations of womb, rahman, rahman, and so on. My visiting them is part of the bond of blood relation, but I'm closer to Jesus than I am to Aaron. At this point, the conversation ends. Ibn Arabi journeys on to the third heaven, where he finds Joseph. It's another story. (laughs) He comes across John again in the fifth heaven, and he's very surprised to find him there. I didn't see you on my way. Is there another path? (laughs) And John replied, Everyone has his own path, which no one follows but him. And then Ibn Arabi asks, So where's this road leading? To which John replied, It is laid down as you travel. This is the final message from the living. Travel, and you will discover. And there's no escape from traveling the path. It has not been laid out yet. It is forever in the making. It belongs to each and no other. And by implication, its fullest realization requires accepting total responsibility for one's actions and total abandonment to God. It is up to us how far we allow God to be real. And this is a quotation from Ibn Abi's Ruch quds When the secrets proceed from God through the gate of mercy, any heart that is found turned to the gate, imploring, is given its portion of the secrets and wisdom. This share is in proportion to the degree of thirst and hunger, of submissiveness and need which the heart possesses. For they the secrets belong exclusively to God. It is to this that the sheikhs allude and this the law urges when it says inhale the fragrances of God, the nafakhat Allah. Whoever delays will be delayed whoever forgets is forgotten. End of quote. These fragrances which are carried on the breeze are from pure beneficence arriving at each instant afresh. They're living, they bring life. Not just physical life, but a life of the spirit, life in knowledge of the real. As Ibn Arabi says, in everything there is his spirit, and there is no thing in him. It is God who praises himself and glorifies himself. So with this in mind, and reminding ourselves that the words of true prayer to God oblige him to give life to what is asked for I'd like to end with a, one line from a prayer in Ibn Arabi's weird O living one vivify me with your remembrance thank you